welcome to edition number 1904 of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 10th of March. My name is Byron Russell and I edited this edition. Beside me at the recording controls we have Eric Imerson and our readers today are Alan Ravel, Andrew Law, John Ashwell and Alison Granger. This week we have items from the Whitney Gazette, which was surprisingly full of news this week. Our first story is read by Alan and concerns the increasing number of cycling-related deaths in the county. Yes, the headline is Urgent Call for Change After Cyclists' Deaths. A cycling campaign group is calling for urgent changes following a crash which saw a cyclist killed in Oxfordshire. The cyclist, a woman in her 30s, suffered serious injuries and died at the scene following a collision with a tipper lorry at the junction of St Clement Street and the Plain in Oxford. The incident followed the deaths of a cyclist near Oxford Parkway railway station and a pedestrian in Chipping Norton in recent weeks. Dr Alison Hill, chair of the Oxford group Cyclox, said the reduced sorry, said reduced speed and segregated cycle routes were some of the options available in order to make roads safer. She said, we all should be calling for a vision zero, which is about total intolerance of any road user death because it is just awful for any road user to lose their life. There, there is this local consultation out called the Local Transport and Connectivity Plan and I know we should be using that opportunity to call for urgent action faster and sooner to make our roads safer. It involves things like reducing speed and reducing traffic volume, which is utterly crucial because people see the huge number of cars and just feel too intim- intimidated to get on their bikes. It involves making safe, segregated cycle routes that are separated from traffic because that is the only way people will feel safe. Oxford City Council leader Susan Brown said, While it is too soon to know if this incident is related to the junction design, the City Council will be writing to Oxfordshire County Council asking them to urgently review the safety of the plain roundabout. We believe that there is an urgent need to look at what can be done to improve safety and to ensure that we involve cyclists and cycling groups as part of this review. We welcome the work the County Council is currently developing on cycle quick ways and quiet ways, but major changes are needed in order to create a safe road network for everyone, for cyclists, for pedestrians and for drivers. County Councillor Damien Haywood said... We have to massively improve the infrastructure for cyclists. I've been calling for quite a while that white lines do not work. We need dedicated cycling infrastructure, something which stops vehicles going into cycling lanes, a physical barrier. White line infrastructure isn't infrastructure. They don't stop vehicles going across. The City Council's Shadow Member for Transport, Culture and Communities, Dick Wolfe, said... My heart sank when I heard the news and sank again when I heard a lorry was involved. It's absolutely crucial to get segregated cycleways. An appeal for a military kit as a terrified mother says she fears for the life of her son who is joining the army in war-torn Ukraine. Native Ukrainian Larissa Botchelby 
who now lives in Whitney, has spoken of her anxiety for the safety of her 36-year-old son, Vladimir, as the Russian army continues its assault with heavy bombardment of civilian artillery. Vadim Bey, wife Alona, and their seven-year-old son, Demir, are in the southern coastal town of Chernomorsk near Odessa on the Black Sea coast. There have been warnings that Russian forces are preparing to shell the historic port city. Mr. Bey previously worked for the army in the now Russian-controlled Donbass region. He is leaving his job in military IT and completing the documentation to rejoin the Ukrainian army. He hopes to be on the front line, helping to repel the Russian invasion of his homeland in about a week. Mrs. Botchaby said, I am very anxious, angry and upset. At this moment, my grandson is underground with my friend for the second time today. I am taking tablets every day. I am so depressed. Her grandson is living with his other grandmother. She says he is rushed to an improvised bomb shelter under his school every time there is a Russian attack. When the sirens sound, Mr. and Mrs. Bay, who work in the Ukrainian army military office in Chernomorsk, say their post, stay at their posts and keep working. Vadim's stepfather, Tony Botchaby, is urgently appealing to army surplus stores or anyone who has access to military protective clothing to donate helmets and body armors for the civilians at the army office in preparation for further Russian advancement. He is willing to collect any donations, many of which have messages of support scrawled on them and has a van leaving on Saturday. Mr. Botchaby, who works at Max Garage in Whitney, said the Russians are moving along the south coast and will move on to his city. All the men have been conscripted, which is millions. And in Kiev, 25,000 volunteers have picked up Kalashnikovs and are going on to the front lines. However, there is a shortage of ammunition. Last night, luckily, I managed to get Validim a combat helmet and body armour through a customer at the garage who is ex-REF. But these things are really difficult to get hold of. I am hoping that because we live in an area with so many families, there will be people who have been in Afghanistan and still have equipment. We want as many helmets, boots, sleeping bags and as much body armour as possible. The delivery, one of thousands of aid missions to Ukraine, will travel directly to Kormanchev. There, the city beach, which is of the best in Ukraine, has been laid with landmines to defend, defend the city. Mrs. Botchaby added, there is not enough food in the supermarket. Today there was milk and butter. Tomorrow there may be pasta. Every day different food arrives from the factories. 
but now it is getting difficult as all the roads from the big cities are mined. The biggest problem is there is not enough ammunition. The Russians are shelling 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I spoke to Vadim today and he is very happy as the Ukrainian army hit a Russian warship and a helicopter last night. They are doing a great job, but at a huge loss. There is going to be no surrender. They will fight to the death. I am so proud of my country. Mr. Botchby said, my wife is terrified. She sits at her computer all day watching the news live. She speaks, speaks to Vladim every day on the phone and he says he is trying to stay positive. She is seeing her country being ripped apart. I can't imagine what she is thinking, but she is worried to death. People are being blown apart. I have been to Ukraine many times and they are the friendliest people. You just would not wish anything like this on them. They are going through devastation. Any donations can be left at Max Garage in Burford Road, Whitney. And from John, we have an article in the uh, Gazette this week about a controversy over Russian donations to the local Conservative Party. Yes, headed up, Labour joined calls for MP to hand over Russians £18,000. There are fresh calls for Whitney MP Robert Courts to take thousands of pounds he received from the wife of a former Russian minister and give it to the Ukrainian humanitarian causes. Mr Courts and West Oxfordshire Conservatives received just under £18,000 from Lubov Chernukin, wife of Vladimir Chernukin, who served as Russia's President Vladimir Putin's Deputy Finance Minister before moving to the UK in 2004. Mrs Chernukin has given more than £2 million to the Conservative Party since 2016. The Tories have previously defended taking money from Mrs Chernukin and there is no suggestion that Mr and Mrs Chernukin, their wealth, is illegitimate. The party insists the donations come from a British citizen and the donations are all legal under electoral rules and properly declared. Whitney Lib Dems have launched a petition that states Mr Courts must explain where the Russian linked money they have received has come from or to give it to groups who support the people of Ukraine. And now Labour has added the voices to call for the donations to go to charity. Steve Akers, Vice-Chairman of the Chipping Norton Labour Party, said it is entirely for Robert Courts's conscience if he thinks keeping this donation is appropriate or whether he should now donate this money to the Disaster Emergency Committee Ukraine Appeal. I think all Tory politicians who have received money from anyone linked with Putin's regime should now donate this to relieving the suffering of the Ukrainian people. A spokesman said the donations were not money paid to Mr Courts and he has never had the money to spend or allocate as he pleases. Donations are made to the local Conservative Association to be spent on local campaigns. Mrs Chernukin, who with her husband owns a mansion in Oxfordshire, among other properties, has criticised Putin's despotic regime 
and condemned the invasion of Ukraine. The spokesperson added that therefore the only reason this question was being asked must be because the donor was foreign-born. Does this mean that you will be asking the local Liberal Democrats if they will be returning the over £20,000 they have received from a dual national in recent years? I am not saying that Robert or anyone is calling for them to do so, but it is important that they are held to their own standards. If they are suggesting that anyone with any foreign connection should not be able to do to donate to political parties. Mike Brooker, who is standing for Labour in Whitney South in the May elections, has started a petition on change.org asking for the £17,975 that Whitney Conservatives received to go to the British Red Cross Ukraine Crisis Appeal. He said, when something looks wrong, seems wrong and cries out is wrong, surely this is a time you call out the wrong. Figures released by the Electoral Commission show Mrs Chinookin donated another £80,250 to the party in the final months of 2021. And finally, in this introductory section, Alison reads three short news items for you. That's right. The first one has the headline, River Warning After Thames Dog Rescue. Firefighters have urged people not to attempt to rescue animals from rivers after the rescue of a person and dog from the Thames. Crews from Farringdon and Abingdon were called to the river at Duxford, near Bampton, at 4.30 on Sunday. They said quick thinking and early intervention from Thames Valley Police, who were first on scene, prevented the person getting into further trouble. Incident Commander C.M. Kelly said, This could have very quickly become a very serious incident. Please do not enter the water to attempt to rescue animals and pets. The water flow and cold weather make the water even more dangerous at this time of year. And secondly, warnings over bird flu. Cases of avian flu in wild birds in Oxfordshire have prompted a warning not to touch feathers. Trading Standards has warned the public to keep to footpaths, keep dogs on a lead, not to feed wild waterfowl, not to pick up or touch dead or sick wild birds, and not to touch wild bird feathers or surfaces contaminated with wild bird droppings. The advice follows suspected cases which saw a number of birds found dead on Oxford's Port Meadow. People should report sightings of dead wild waterfowl to the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs by calling 03459 335577. And finally... Plans for huge solar farm. A solar farm covering 52 hectares could be built on land near Coles Hill. An energy firm has submitted a screening opinion request to Vale of Whitehorse District Council for a solar farm and associated infrastructure on land off Snowswick Lane near Coles Hill. Able Energy said... The proposed development responds 
to both the government's and the local planning authorities' support for solar energy by providing a renewable energy supply that would reduce carbon emissions and assist in establishing a greater diversity of energy sources in the UK. The firm highlighted that the district and county councils declared a climate emergency in 2019, so both were committed to the challenge of tackling climate change. A decision is set to be made by March the 10th. So Alison's last short item was about solar farm applications, and this is a more expanded story on the same subject. The headline is Hint of Caution Over Wave of Solar Farm Applications. Concern has been raised over the volume and long-term future of the solar farms popping up across West Oxfordshire. It comes after concerns raised by councillors in Vale of White Horse about a tidal wave of applications for solar farms. Applications for two giant solar farms were submitted in the Cumnor Parish in consecutive months. Large-scale solar panels that capture and store energy from the sun, offering an environmentally friendly source of electricity, have become a regular sight across the country as part of efforts to tackle climate change. Another one is set to go on Ducklington Farm, Course Hill Lane in Ducklington, after Novus Renewable Services gained planning permission this week. They will go on a 46-hectare plot, which is about the size of 110 football pitches. This land is currently used for grazing, a use that will be maintained on some of the land. The panels are to be decommissioned after 40 years. The application was passed unanimously by the Council's Lowlands Area Planning Subcommittee, but Councillor Dan Levy sounded a hint of caution. He said, Notwithstanding the fact we need renewable energy and have to do our bit, I'm very worried about the cumulative effect of all of these solar farms in West Oxfordshire. There are a number going up covering an increasing amount of the landscape in the district, particularly when they are on hills like this one, with the best will in the world, And with whatever landscaping you do, you see it, and it does change that landscape. Each of the developers that have come here, and they are all separate developments, and we have to look at them separately, have claimed they are world leaders in their field. It is absolutely necessary, and they will be around in 40 years to get rid of the evidence. I think they should mean they won't be around in 40 years to get rid of the evidence. He continued, I'm not sure they will be around in 40 years, which is a bit of an issue, and they all claim they have found the only site in the district where a solar farm can be built. The net effect is that we look at each of these individual, very worthy plans and end up with a lot of the district being covered in solar panels. I accept this individual application is a very good one, but cumulatively I'm worried about what is happening. Councillor Rosa Bolger shared the concerns and suggested a way of reducing the impact. She asked, perhaps slightly separate to this application, but is there a way to encourage developers like the one here today to work with our anchor institutions, which are key organisations with a long-term base in the area, to develop solar farms on top of our industrial buildings? 
Happy families for wildlife parks. It's clearly breeding time in the zoo with this family of rhinos, along with new arrivals for the Bactrian cam camels. Cotswolds Wildlife Park has announced it is welcoming its second new additions this year. Critically endangered Bactrian camel, Louis, named after Prince Louis, as he was born on the same day, has just become a first-time father of two calves. The park is now home to four females and breeding male, Louis, who arrived at the park in 2020 and settled in well. These new arrivals are the first camels to be born at the park since 2018. The wild Bactrian camel is thought to be one of the rarest large mammals on earth. The twins join rhino calf Queenie, born on January the 24th and named to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee year. Managing Director Reggie Hayworth said, I thought it might be a bit presumptuous to call our new baby Elizabeth, so I have christened her Queenie instead. And now we have a couple of short news items. A man fined for speeding. An Oxfordshire man has been fined for driving above the speed limit in London. Samuel Jones, 43, of Aikman Street in Coombe, near Woodstock, appeared in East London Magistrates Court on February the 26th. The court found on March the 21st last year that Jones drove a Land Rover on the A40 between Long Drive and Welland Gardens in Greenford at more than 40 miles an hour. He was recorded by a Siemens Safe Zone system at 49 mph. He was fined £500, told to pay a victim surcharge of £50 and costs of £90. He was also disqualified from holding or obtaining a driving licence for six months. And the second item is headed Stuffing Issues Hold Up Refuse Collection Rounds. Bin collections in parts of the county were reported to have been running behind schedule last week. West Oxfordshire District Council explained to residents living in the affected areas that the delay to collections was down to issues with stuffing. Talking to Twitter, the council said, As a result of, of, stuffing, of a stuffing issue, our waste collections have been running behind in some areas this week. If your collection is still outstanding after 3pm today, please leave your containers at your usual collection point and crews will be working tomorrow. The council added that households had not received uh, their collections by 3pm on Friday, March the 4th, then there was an online form which they could use to report it. Cornbury to hold final fling again. One of the county's biggest and longest-running music festivals has announced it is bringing down the curtain after nearly 20 years. Cornbury Music Festival, which was launched in 2004, will hold its final fling this summer. Named after its former home of Cornbury Park near Charlbury, the festival has been held at Great Chew near Chipping Norton since 2011. 
Over the years, it has played host to the likes of Paul Simon, Robert Plant, Tom Jones, Amy Winehouse, Blondie, Elvis Costello and the Beach Boys. It's also been a haunt for celebrities to hang out, including footballer and pundit Peter Crouch with wife and Strictly Come Dancing winner Abby Clancy and nearby residents Jeremy Clarkson, Alex James and David Cameron. Promoter Hugh Fillimore previously announced the festival's demise in 2017, with a finale topped by Canadian rocker Brian Adams. While the festival did return the following year, with Mr Fillimore bowing to public pressure, he insists he insists this really is the end, and it will bow out with another show by Brian Adams. Famous for hits The Summer of 69, All for Love, and run to you. Mr Fillimore said he was sad to see the festival go, but conceded it was time to stop. He said, I know we've been here before, but I wanted to let you all know that for a combination of reasons, this really will be the last Cornbury. We've loved every precious moment of this dear little independent festival, but I'm afraid it's now time for me to hang up my festival lanyards and call it a night. The last ever festival will be from July the 8th to the 10th at Great Chew Park. Adams will be joined by James Blunt, former Boys Own star Ronan Keating, The Darkness, The Waterboys and Jules Holland. Other acts include Micah Paris, The Magic Numbers, Altered Images, The Christians, Alice Russell, Get Cape Where Cape Fly, William the Conqueror, Ferris and Sylvester, Andy Fairweather, Low, I think that might be Andy Fairweather Low, Amy Montgomery and Beans on Toast. Mr Fillimore added, I hope you'll all agree that we've enjoyed many wonderful summer weekends listening to great music and we'll come away with some fantastic Cornbury memories. We really hope that you will join us this year for one last hurrah. Thank you again for all of your support over the years and I look forward very much to seeing you in July. The festival was last held in 2019 but was postponed twice due to the pandemic. <coughs> Announcing this year's lineup, Mr Fillimore said it had been a long, sad two-year sabbatical but it was back with a classic Cornbury lineup. He described the confirmed artists as old friends who simply do what they do brilliantly and make us smile. See cornburyfestival.com on the web. And the next story is about another big summer event uh, in this part of the country. Feastival reveals its tasty foodie lineup. Some of the country's top chefs will be brushing off their aprons and polishing up their whisks, ready to appear at Oxfordshire's big festival. Junior Bake Off judge Ravneet Gill, cook, presenter and Oaxaca founder Thomasina Myers, chef and restaurateur Robin Gill and great British menu winner James Cochran will be turning up the heat for live cooking demonstrations and talks at the Festival of Music and Food, 
which is held on rock star Alec James's, Alex James's farm at Kingham. They will join a lineup already featuring music headliners The Human League, Anne-Marie and Stereophonics. Other culinary stars to appear at the three-day event over the August bank holiday include TV chef and food writer Ching He Huang, chef Lee Tiernan, Brad Carter, chef and owner of Michelin-starred Carters of Moseley, London baker, food stylist and author Benjamina Ebuhe, cookbook author Ixta Belfrage, Great British Bake Off contestant Lizzie Acker and gluten-free food writer Betty Excel. A firm favourite of Big Festival, grill star DJ Barbecue also returns with his blend of meats and beets. I'm only reading it, I haven't written this. <laughs> Along with the foodie talent is a lineup of children's entertainment including children's TV star Justin Fletcher Andy and the Odd Socks, Bluey and Bingo, Zog, Cosmic Kids Yoga, and the return of Country File presenter Adam Henson's Cotswold Farm Park attraction, at which children can come face-to-face with livestock from his Gloucestershire farm. There will also be a creative session with Wallace and Gromit creators, Ardman Anim- Animations, a silent disco, and a vintage funfair. Last night, Alec, uh, sorry, last month, Alex James unveil, unveiled the musical bill, which, along with Anne Marie, Stereophonics, and the Human League, includes Sugar Babes, Jake Bug, Bake, Basement Jacks, Gabrielle, Sam Ryder, Lola Young, Alfie Templeman, The Future Heads, The Sherlocks, The Lottery Winners, Duke, and annual favourites, The Cuban Brothers. Anne-Marie, who is perhaps best known for her vocals on Clean Bandit's Rockabye, alongside Jamaican star Sean Paul, made headlines after her appearance at the Brit Awards last month when she dramatically fell downstairs on stage, but continued with her performance. Festival host Alex James said, We've been busy building on last summer's sold-out festival, and our strongest lineup yet will bookend what promises to be an unforgettable summer of celebration. Camping, weekend and day tickets are on sale now at thebigfestival.com. Drunk holidaymaker kicked out at police. A drunken bricklayer who kicked off at a holiday park asked to be sent to prison so he could dry out and get his head in a better place. Chipping Norton man Lee Creed was at Little Sea Holiday Park, Weymouth, when his then-partner and her children, on June the 27th last year, when he was dragged from his tent by the police. Officers had been called to reports of a drink driver. Creed's partner and her children were asleep in the car, The defendant, asleep in a tent, shouted to his protestations when he was awoken and repeated, Did you see me driving? The 33-year-old blew a breath test for a few seconds, 
but without enough force for the machine to register the level of alcohol. Creed was put in handcuffs and responded by making the threat, You're lucky I don't nut you. Placed into the police car, he repeatedly spat, kicked out at the central console, the steering wheel and at one of the offices. Described by one of the officers as seething with rage, he shouted that they should taser him or he would knock all of you out. He was twice hit with bursts of pepper spray. He said, I've not done anything to you. Reminded that he kicked one of the officers, Creed replied, and I'll kick you again and I'll carry on. The officers removed him from the car and put him on the ground as children and parents looked on. Taken to Weymouth Police Station, he refused the breath test. On January 19th this year, he was in Chipping Norton Town Centre when he went into Sainsbury's and stole a can of pre-mixed gin and lemonade, a bottle of wine and a prawn sandwich. Mitigating Indian Ferris told the court when Creed was before the court earlier in the year, he asked to be remanded as he recognised he had a problem with an alcohol that needed addressing. He said he needed that time in custody to get his head in a better place, the solicitor said. The bricklayer was remorseful and, if allowed his liberty, had work lined up with a former boss. Creed of the Beaches, Chipping Norton, admitted to failing to provide a specimen, driving without a valid licence, assaulting an emergency worker, criminal damage, shoplifting and drunk and disorderly behaviour. District Judge Kamlesh Rana told Creed, Your previous record is abysmal. There is no reason why I shouldn't send you to prison today but I take into account your guilty pleas. I take into account the incredible courage you showed in saying I have a problem. He was given an 18-month community order, an alcohol rehabilitation programme and a three-month curf- and a three-month curfew. He must pay £1,177.80 £1, compensation and got three years driving ban. And now a piece entitled Victory for Save Our Moors Campaigners. Campaigners fighting plans to build 120 homes near to their village are celebrating after the scheme was turned down. Ducklington protest group Save Our Moors had fought plans for the housing, saying it would close the gap between their village and neighbouring Whitney. More than 300 objections were lodged on West Oxford District Council's planning portal to the proposals from Ainscoff Strategic Land for a large development on open land known as Moores Field. At a meeting on Monday, joined by about 30 villagers, Councillors turned down the plans over fears the village would sprawl into Whitney. The loss of a green gap between Ducklington and Whitney concerned uh, over flooding and a potential net loss of biodiversity means the natural environment will be left in a worse state, 
were among the arguments put forward by Matthew Barker of Duttlington Parish Council, who spoke for an army of villagers in the council chamber. Planning officers also recommended refusal, stating the plans were out of keeping with the area's character and local distinctiveness, would increase the volume of homes in the village by 17%, fail to avoid the coalescence of Whitney and Ducklington, and lose green space between the two. Issues with regard to highway safety and the potential for the site to have archaeologically significant items buried underneath remain subject to feedback from Oxfordshire County Council, but the lack of an agreement from the, uh, for the developers to contribute towards infrastructure also provided a stumbling block. Jenny Brow of Ainscoff argued the reasons for refusal were not insurmountable and could be overcome through planning conditions, questioning whether West Oxfordshire may fall short of its five-year housing land supply requirements, that's the volume of, of available sites, to meet targets. However, councillors were not persuaded. Richard Langridge said, this is essentially speculative development in the open countryside. It is entirely disproportionate and would have a devastating effect on what is to be oh sorry what is an important area of green space and now we're very pleased to welcome this week um, David Sabatz who's going to do the reflection slot for us this week thank you very much indeed David thank you this year the Christian season of Lent began just over a week ago on the 2nd of March And there is an old saying that goes like this. I say, I say, why are there only 46 weeks in the Christian year? Because six of them are Lent. Lent is often regarded as a time for giving things up. Many folk resist eating chocolate. Others will not drink alcohol. Whilst there will be a number who promise to go on a diet in an attempt to lose the pounds they have put on during the winter months. The first day of Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, which is on a different date each year. And the period of Lent commemorates the 40 days Jesus spent fasting in the desert. The Latin word for 40th is quadragesima, but another word is also used, and that word lectern means spring, leading to new life. It's so wonderful to see snowdrops, crocus and daffodils in bloom. And as hopefully the weather warms up, there will be more plants, flowers and trees which will come into bloom. Years ago, people took Lent very seriously. It was a time for self-examination. For 40 days they thought about how they lived their life. They would try to think about Jesus and the way he was tempted. Some put hard peas in their shoes to make them uncomfortable. Others wore sacks as clothes, as though in mourning, whilst others marked their faces with ash to look sad. I've not seen anybody doing those things so far this year, but there's still time for that to happen. Perhaps, though, we should still use Lent as a time to improve our life.
many, many years ago, there was a prince who was travelling through France when he visited a prison. Because of who he was, he was allowed to release one of the condemned men. So he went from cell to cell, asking why the prisoners were there. All but one declared their innocence, telling of injustice and false accusations. The last man said something very different. Sir, as much as I would like to be free, I'm guilty. I've committed many crimes and I deserve to be here. The prince listened intently and then said in a loud voice, You despicable wretch! What a pity you should be amongst so many honest men. By your own admission, you are bad enough to corrupt them all. You'll not stay here another day. And to the prison officer he said, This is the man. Release him. He knew that all the prisoners were guilty, but the one who acknowledged it and was truly sorry would receive mercy and be granted freedom. Lent is a time for admitting that we make a mess of life, and with God's help, I would suggest that we try to do something about it. Lent is not really for giving things up, but giving in to the claims Jesus makes on our life. May each of us use the remaining days of Lent to consider perhaps how we can help others, especially those in our country, who struggle with day-to-day living. Let us consider too, at this most challenging time in my lifetime, what we can do to help those who find themselves in the desperate and heartbreaking situation happening in the country of Ukraine. May God bless you as you respond in whatever way you can to the needs of so many. Amen. David, thank you very much indeed for that thoughtful and reflective piece at uh, this important um, time of the year. Thank you. And now we move on to the last instalment of Barbara Bunyan's fascinating memoir, My Village in Wartime. In this final chapter, we learn of the army manoeuvres and, as war ends, the personal changes ahead for Mrs Bunyan, who writes, The village, and in particular our farm, saw a number of short-term army manoeuvres when the lorry loads of troops, tanks and machine gun carriers descended unexpectedly. Our farm and the barns were targeted and, to our dismay, taken over at short notice. The war rag issued large cardboard notices to us at the farm with the message, Out of Bounds. We were asked to nail these to stakes and place them in the fields with livestock or where cattle grazed. The idea was to deter any invasion of that area by a tank or lorry full of troops out practising their procedures. Since there was only one notice per field, later I questioned just how useless this practice was. Should the tank or other army vehicles seek to enter that field from another direction? Fortunately for us, no fences, fields or other areas were ever invaded. Our main barn, off the stockyard, 
was taken over by the army and a wireless station was set up on the upper floor adjacent to the chaff cutter and sacks of corn stored there. Lorries, gun carriers and other army paraphernalia took over the yard and troops galore were side by side with the normal dairying routines each day. We had a week of this upheaval and our main concern was making sure some relevant gates were kept fastened and the no-smoking sign observed around the hay and straw stacks in the Dutch barn. From observation, the troops appeared to be divided into two groups. One group challenging the other, and each spent a lot of time racing around the buildings, in and out of the gates, into fields, and, to my mother's horror, in and out of the fir trees and rose bushes in the garden. My mother was a very keen gardener, and worried about the dashing in and around the gardens and tennis court. She had beautiful spring flowers, all in bud, with daffodils looking their best in large yellow patches. She warned the powers that be that if any of the daffodils were destroyed, war or no war, she would get the gun out. She meant it too. My father's background, my mother's background, sorry, was a, of a tough life, an orphan girl brought up by straight-laced aunts near Oswestry in Shropshire. Happily, the gun stayed locked up. We were much relieved when the whole army convoy moved away to another area. Once the war was over, it took time to get back to a pre-war state. Rationing continued for the home and farm. Animal feeding was heavily rationed, which was why we grew root crops to supplement cow and calf cake, ground meal from the corn, and daily boiled potatoes for the pigs and other stock. Mangolds were harvested every day in the winter months. Swedes and potatoes were added to the mix, which daily were put through a giant slicer and mixed with hay for a staple meal. If you did not feed the livestock properly, you could not expect the animals to thrive, to produce milk, meat, and, in the case of poultry, of course, eggs. In the house, my mother was a good manager and very able in cooking and household skills. We were lucky to have daily fresh milk, eggs and home-baked bread and butter. Bacon and ham were plentiful, as we had the license to slaughter and cure the meat of two of our own pigs each year. Our main shortage was sugar, but somehow that was procured through the black market. One did not ask questions about bartering, and the black market were rife at the time. Fuel was still difficult and in short supply. Every month we had to apply for our fuel allowance for both private and farm use. Completing application forms became my job, as my father had little patience for officialdom and form filling. Record returns had to be sent each month about the number of cattle on the farm and of any other livestock we kept. After all the drama, the ups and downs of war years, Routines on the farm were once again continued, though, as mentioned, as mentioned rationing existed. Many of our wartime service personnel went home, though Oliver Bateman from the stables at Ancham Hall still visited us, but he had lost contact with all his military friends. I suspect that many service personnel wanted to forget the war and get back to Civvy Street and be with their families and friends again. I left the village school in 1942, earlier than planned, for eye operations were on the agenda. Throughout my primary school years, I was a weekly patient at the Oxford Eye Hospital, 
going every Wednesday with my parents to Oxford. Father went to the cattle market in Gloucester Green, mother to the shop and to the hairdressers. The eye hospital was at the rear of the former Radcliffe Infirmary, just off Walton Street, now the observatory quarter in Oxford. I left Rothesey House School, Oxford, in 1949, and after some very hard graft in London on a student exchange scheme for young agriculturalists and horticulturalists in Nortozma work, I'd already been up for an interview with the head of transport, a family friend, at the NFU. New applicants usually had to take a shorthand test. I was no exception, <coughs> and failed in one word I could not read, milking parlour. I'd never heard the term before, as all our cows were milked in stone-built cow sheds. However, I got the job, and two weeks later prepared to move to London. I was fortunate, for a friend of mine who knew London well was living in a hospital near Marble Arch, one of the London Hostel Association buildings. I got in touch, and a bed was found for me in a room of eight ladies, sharing bathrooms and one locker each in adjoining anterooms. It was very basic, but the other girls were very nice, and we became one big family. The hostel was surrounded by other badly blitzed buildings, and the area near Tottenham Court Road was flattened in several large places. John Lewis, on Oxford Street, had only a ground-level shop, very different from the tall, gigantic building we see today. The food was awful. We never knew what we were eating, and rationing didn't help. Sugar was still rationed, and I kept my sugar ration for the week in a small glass jar, which I carried with me to all meals. Sweets were rationed and expensive. Money for me in London was always in short supply. I was rather more fortunate than some of my hostel companions because I was able to get a subsidised, fresh-cooked lunch at the National Farmers Union. Two full-time chefs worked there, and farmers brought in fresh produce from all parts of the country when they attended meetings. I believe that rationing generally ceased in the mid-1950s, when life returned to former normality. Unfortunately for me, I was obliged to leave my job and friends in London on health grounds. I had lost a lot of weight and suffered from daily vertigo. The GP felt the lack of nourishing food and the pressure of being in a large, bustling city was taking its toll. I found this situation devastating, as I was just beginning to make more friends and finding my way around London, but trying to live on a modest salary, paying weekly for digs, did not allow for any extras or entertainment or travel. I returned to the farm and to my parents. I had no job, couldn't afford to rent, let alone buy a home of my own. I was desperately lonely, for the friends that I had in Oxford had married or moved on, so all I did was to hanker for a return to London. Senate House, part of the University of London, offered me a job, but deep down and facing reality, I could not ignore why I had left London in the first place. My ambition had been to work in one of the embassies, French or German, but that was not to be. Thus, a new chapter started in my life. Many thanks to Barbara for the fascinating look at life in an Oxfordshire village in the 40s. Now let's go over to our regular quiz and the answers from the last edition on March the 3rd. Good luck to our readers in answering these, as I didn't even get one of them. Number one, 
Which of these rivers is the longest? Dee, Tweed or Trent? It's actually the Trent. The Trent at 185 miles. Tweed is 96 miles and the Scottish Dee is 87 miles. The Welsh Dee is 70 miles. Number two. Which of these structures is the oldest? Stonehenge, Bella Snap or Rollwright Stones? Oh, oh, some controversies. Well, um, according to um, according to uh, Bridget, who put the quiz together, the Rollwright the Rollwright Stones, which is perhaps six thousand years old, but that's for the Whispering Knights, the King's Men, and the King's Stone are uh, slightly more recent. Bellisnap is about five thousand years old, and Stonehenge about four thousand five hundred. Number three, which of these cities is the newest? Leeds. Brighton or and Hove or Preston? It's Preston. Yep. Preston was given city status in 2002, Brighton and Hove 2001, and Leeds in, 19, in 1893. Number four, which of these national parks is the largest? The South Downs, Exmoor or the Yorkshire Dales? It is the Yorkshire Dales. Yeah. <laughs> it is the Yorkshire Dales, 683 square miles. South Downs, 633 square miles. And Exmoor, 267 square miles. And then the last one, number five. Which of these is the tallest? Um, the Spire of Salisbury Cathedral, Blackpool Tower, or the Gherkin? It is the Gherkin, yep, 180 metres. Blackpool Tower, 158 metres. And Salisbury Cathedral, 132. Now we go on to this week's quiz. Um, No shouting out the answers. (laughs) Um, Number one. This week's quiz, by the way, is all about geography, basically. Where would you find the town of Catania? Where would you find the town of Catania? Number two, who wrote A Passage to India? Number three, who wrote a piece of music about the beautiful Blue Danube? Number four, in which sea would you find the Spratly Islands? And number five, how many miles is it from Whitney to Edinburgh, and there's multiple choice here. Is it A, 400 miles, B, 600 miles, or C, 700 miles? And that's to the nearest 100 miles. So good luck with answering those, and as usual, we'll have the answers to those questions next week. But now, before we go on to the second part of this edition... We're saddened to announce the following deaths which were listed in the Whitney Gazette this week. On the 5th of February, Gwen Elliott. On the 21st of February, Sheila Daniels. On the 27th of February, Joan Elise Bailey. And on the 3rd of March, Kenneth Beams. Our condolences to their friends and their families. So now let's move on to the second part of this edition 
And the first few cheerful stories are all taken from the special Charity Heroes section of the Whitney Gazette. We start this charity section with two short articles, starting off with a charity ice skating event. Families get skates on for icy recreation. Nearly 4,000 people took advantage of the free ice skating offered over the February school's half-term break. Some 3,920 parents and children got their skates on when Marriott's Walk in Whitney and Market Square in Carterton were transformed into ice arenas as part of the Love West Oxfordshire campaign. The project was funded from the European Regional Development Fund as part of its Welcome Back Fund. The fund has been provided to encourage people back to high streets and support businesses impacted as a result of restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Susie Cool, the West Oxfordshire District Council Cabinet Member for Finance, said, Many local families came and enjoyed the ice skating over half term. It's great that we're able to offer this opportunity to local residents many of whom are already using the Loyal Free app to access many discounts and activities across West Oxfordshire. I was really pleased to hear how many families turned out over half term and I hope that our local traders felt the benefit of increased footfall in our town centres. And secondly, Choir to Rock Shoppers with Fundraising Songs. Singers in what claims to be the world's largest contemporary choir will join forces to raise money for this year's Red Nose Day. Rock choir members from Abingdon, Didcot, Oxford, Wantage and Whitney will perform outside Didcot's Sainsbury's in Central Drive on March 12th. They will sing two 40-minute sets at noon and 1pm and collect donations for comic relief. The event will be televised on BBC One on March the 18th. Comic Relief asks people to donate to help people who live in poverty, violence and discrimination. It includes organisations supporting people suffering from the war in Ukraine. My story's headlined, Care Homes Calendar Raises £1,600. A care home has raised £1,600 for its Residents' Amenities Fund thanks to support from across the world for its special calendar. Staff members at MHA Brookfield in Greater Lees, Oxford produced a calendar for 2022 with the help of residents who each posed for images based on famous paintings. Residents dressed up and replicated a series of paintings from years gone by. The home provides nursing and nursing dementia care for 66 residents in purpose-built ensuite accommodation. The pictures were taken and edited by Rebecca Philipson, one of the home's volunteers. The calendars proved to be a hit both nationally and internationally, with people in the US, Germany and Poland becoming aware of what the home had done after national media in the UK picked up the story. More than 230 calendars were sold in total, much to the amazement of the home, which had only printed 100 initially. 
After excluding all costs, the home managed to make a profit of £1,600, which will be used towards the, uh, the amenity fund there and to help cover the costs of future activities. Victoria Davidson, the home's activity coordinator, said, The calendars were a huge success and we cannot believe how fast <clears throat> and wide they were talked about. The residents loved the extra attention and we were very impressed with the amount raised. And the article was illustrated by one of the pages from the calendar which shows one of the home's residents dressed uncannily like uh, the Vermeer painting Girl with the Pearl Earring. Um, and she's described as a pensioner from the MHA Brookfield Centre. Here are two more charity events from Blenheim. Fundraisers are training for this for this year's OX5 run at Blenheim Palace in Woodstock. The five-mile run on Sunday, March the 20th, raises funds for Oxford Children's Hospital and returns to the stately home after being held virtually during the pandemic with individual runners devising their own fundraising groups. It is the biggest annual fundraising event for the Children's Hospital, which looks after thousands of children from across the county and beyond. Oxford Hospital's charity welcomes runners and teams of all abilities, aged 10 and over, who can run, jog or walk the Blenheim Palace course. People can enter on their own or as a team of five or more. It costs £35 to enter, £17.50 for children and each runner is asked to set a minimum fundraising target of £200. For information about taking part, email charity at ouh.nhs.uk. The second article, Palace Host Charity Ball. Blenheim Palace staged a fundraising ball for a leading children's charity. Hosted by Impressionist Rory Bremner, the Bremner Ball, in aid of Starlight on Friday, featured a reception at the Palace's Great Hall, dinner in the Long Library, and an auction by Sotheby's UK Chairman Harry Delmont-Many. In 2018, George Spencer Churchill, Marquis of Blanford, took on the Tulsa Whiskey Atlantic Challenge to raise funds for Starlight, the leading UK charity that uses the power of play to make the experience of illness and treatment better for children and their families. Cathy Gilman, Chief Executive of Starlight, said, George and the team rode 3,000 miles across the Atlantic and to welcome them home and carry on the fundraising, he hosted the first Blenheim Palace Ball for charity. Now we have a piece um, asking for volunteers to help out at the museum. Volunteers are needed to help preserve the rich history of Whitney. Whitney and District Museum, which was completely refurbished during lockdown, is urgently looking for more helpers. It says the role would ideally be suited to anyone keen to get involved with local history. Volunteers form the central workforce of the organisation 
and give their time to helping in a variety of ways, from welcoming people into the museum, helping behind the scenes documenting and sorting through the archives, or helping with maintenance and decorating. The museum in Gloucester Court Mews, High Street, is holding a volunteer open day on Saturday 12th of March from 10am to 4pm. Organiser Kath Wondrak said, Please call in for a chat, coffee and a biscuit and say hello. Anyone interested in becoming a volunteer will join a friendly group of people all dedicated to keeping the traditions of Whitney alive. Former Hollyoaks star uses podcast to support women. A new podcast series launched by mental health charity Elmore Community Services is raising awareness about how men can help to tackle violence against women. Launched to mark International Women's Day, the series is co-hosted by actor Luke Jurdy and the domestic abuse lead for Oxford City Council, Liz Jones. The series is also accompanied by a spoken word performance by Luke about ending misogyny and violence against women and girls across the UK. Mr Jurdy is known for his portrayal of Jesse Donovan in Channel 4's Hollyoaks from 2016 to 2020. Ms Jones has worked in the violence against women and girls field for 16 years and has facilitated and developed programmes for men who choose to be abusive and violent towards partners. She's also a trustee at Elmore Community Services, the mental health, complex needs and domestic abuse charity. With the podcast's encouragement to pass it on to other men, Flipping the Narrative aims to show men that they can help each other to sit up, become aware and take important action to challenge men who perpetrate harmful behaviours. The podcast's hosts are calling on men to pass the series along to friends, families and colleagues in order to start conversations, take new perspectives and support each other and women to build an equitable society and healthy environment for everyone's children to grow up feeling safe and cared for. The podcast series intends to support more men to learn that it is not enough to tell themselves they are not misogynistic. They need to take an active role, however small, in being part of the solution to end violence against females and the impact that it has on their children. The podcast series launches with three episodes shared on a weekly basis. Mr Jurdy said, This podcast is exactly the kind of work I want to be involved in, work with a clear message and impact. I've explored my own issues with masculinity, particularly my problems with anger and what that can lead to. We're all searching for answers and sometimes they aren't clear. I hope the conversations we have in Flipping the Narrative can provide a bit of clarity in our chaotic, uncertain world. Liz Jones, co-host of Flipping the Narrative and an Elmore trustee, said, The common response to abuse and violence towards women is to tell the women what they should do to prevent and stop it. 
We want to flip this narrative and talk to men about being part of the solution to prevent and stop the violence and abuse that impacts to a greater or lesser extent on all the females in their lives. The podcast series explores issues relevant to men, what it means to be a male, addiction, anger, parenting, banter and sex. This article's headed Felt Bad About Eating the Cast But They Tasted Delicious. It was business as usual as Jeremy Clarkson's Oxfordshire farm shop reopened with cars lining lanes and parked on grass as hordes of fans queued to visit over the weekend. Scores of delighted admirers of the TV personality have been returning to his diddly squat farm in Chatlington near Chipping Norton to snap up cow juice, jams, aprons, tea towels, coffee, t-shirts and, it seems, overpriced veg. One customer, Tom Savage, said, I can't wait to taste the meat, but the sprouts are the most expensive I've ever paid for. John Goodall, who popped in for some meat products, said, I felt rather bad about eating some of the cast, but they did taste delicious. Roy, who was out working in the Cotswolds, said, The milk is gorgeous and the pork wasabi sausages with freshly smoked garlic is delish. Thanks, Jezza. Highly recommended. Diddley Squat Farm Shop reopened last Thursday with a healthy queue by 9.30am on a grey morning. The car park was full by 9.45, although shoppers were nearly outnumbered by film crew, shooting season two of Clarkson's Farm, which uses the Cotswold Farm site as a location. Mr Clarkson, whose farm show on subscription channel Amazon Prime video, has earned him a new army of fans. He did not appear as he was away filming his motoring show, The Grand Tour. The farm shop team announced the shop, which has also launched two businesses, Curdle Hill Juice and Curdle Hill Wholesale, jointly owned by Mr Clarkson and his partner, Lisa Hogan, who would be back after a two-month closure, while changes were made to the roof following complaints from the District Council that the wrong material was used. In January, the ex-Top Gear hosts planned for a reasonably priced restaurant and a 70-space car park were refused by the council, with more than 50 objections from the public registered. Mr Clarkson called it a very bad day for farming and vowed to challenge the decision, but villagers in Chattington have expressed fears over increased traffic and speeding, as well as concerns that the area was becoming a Jeremy Clarkson theme park. Planning officers said the proposal was out of keeping with the Cotswold area of outstanding natural beauty. The star gained permission for a lambing shed in 2020 after buying a new flock of sheep to expand the farm business, but it was merged with another local farmer's flock. Planning documents state that the building has since been used, without planning permission, as a cafe and a bar area. So, thanks very much for that, John, and now time for the notice board. And there are just two musical events this weekend which may be of interest.
Tomorrow, Friday the 11th, the audience can look forward to dazzling virtuosity, serious scholarship, intellectual curiosity and impeccable musicianship when the classical and folk group Cosmos play here in the High Street Methodist Church. That's Friday the 11th at 7.30. For more information and tickets, call 01993-898-020. And for more music, Radley College Chapel will be filled with harmony as a full orchestra joins forces with the Radley College Choral Society, organists and special guests Onyx Brass, for a special gala concert. That's on Sunday the 13th of March at Radley College in Kennington at 6pm, and the good news is that entry is free. Finally, the Whitney Torch Fellowship, which provides advice, support, opportunities for fellowship and library services free of charge, meets on the first Saturday of every month at 2pm in the Welcome Church, High Street, Whitney. New members are very welcome. The contact number is 01993 891 639. As well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several other ways for you to listen to all our editions, including the magazines. These include Sonata Plus Internet Audio Player via the website httpswtn.org.uk and through podcasts. All internet services are also accessible through Alexa. Full details can be seen on our website at wtn.org.uk. Just follow the link, listen online. So that's it for this week. Please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. Please do so as soon as possible, as we sometimes run out of labels and pouches and are then, of course, unable to continue our service to you. And remember, if you wish to contact us, just leave a slip of paper in your pouch and we will telephone you. It only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette for all the content that we have used tonight. Thanks also to our technical expert, Eric Imson, who has worked his magic on our mics and on the recording deck, to John Ashwell and Alan Ravel, our copiers and packers, and to our volunteers, Doreen Turner and Jan Butler, who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks you have returned and keeping records in our register. And finally, a big thanks to our readers tonight, Alan Ravel, Andrew Law, John Ashwell and Alison Granger. And, of course, to our Reflections contributor this evening, David Sarbox. Keep listening at the end of our programme for an info sound item which gives some highlights of this week's best radio listening. I know everyone would like to say goodbye, and so until our next edition, goodbye. goodbye. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, March 12th. The broadcaster Joan Bakewell hosts My Dream Dinner Party on Radio 4 at 10.30am. The Radio Sound archives allow her to bring back to life guests she'd like to entertain for dinner and conversation. Among them, the Barbaras, Castle and Windsor, as well as Kirk Douglas and Tennessee Williams. Quite an eclectic mix, which should prove most entertaining.
The afternoon drama at three on four, entitled The War After the War by Paul Coates, stars David Jason and Natalie Davis. The play revolves around former soldier Layla, who's invalided out of the army after losing a leg and moves in with her grandfather who runs a bookshop. He's now widowed and finds it hard to support his grandchild through their complex physical and emotional struggles. Will the two of them be able to find some peace after their own individual wars? On a lighter note on Radio 4 Extra, taking us back to what has often been called the golden age of radio comedy, with Left Hand Down a Bit, in which Leslie Phillips introduces six episodes of The Navy Lark, Ronnie Barker, John Pertwee and Dennis Price, among others, appear alongside Leslie. The programme begins at 7 o'clock, with each episode running for 30 minutes. Sunday, March 13th, Radio 2 at 11am, has Alan Jones sitting in for Michael Ball. Two hours of music and conversation with guests including Danny Baker, Bob Harris and Kate Humble. On Radio 4 at 3, the afternoon play is The Weekend, in which Michael Palin stars in a comedy drama based on his 1994 stage play. Palin plays a middle-aged man whose life is changed when a family gathering has him reaching for the whisky. Radio 3 at 5.30pm repeats the 2020 broadcast of Words and Music. This popular programme features the actors Jane Lopater and John Heffernan, reading from the works of writers such as Walt Whitman, Edgar Allan Poe, John Keats and others, who reflect on the power of miniatures, memories, absence and simplicity. On to the programmes then that are featured at the same time every day, Monday to Friday. So same radio station, same time, each day of the working week. On Radio 4 at 9.45, the 15-minute daily reading is from Making History, the storytellers who shaped the past. Each daily broadcast explores how individual historians have influenced how we view the past. And the reader is Alex Jennings. Radio 3's Composer of the Week, from Midday, features the music of Claude Debussy. Donald MacLeod explores Debussy's life as the composer approached his 30s. It was a challenging period, both personally and privately, and reflected in his music. And then Radio 4 at 1.45, all week, Monday to Friday, The Museums That Make Us. The series which began last week continues with Neil McGregor visiting museums that take on the challenges of the 18th and 19th century. This one's in Derby, at the heart of the Industrial Midlands. The rest of the radio highlights then for the rest of the week, starting with Monday, March 14th. And Radio 4 at 2.15, from fact to fiction, jabber jabber, Mark Lawson's play considers the question of healthcare workers who object to being vaccinated against COVID-19. In spite of recent changes in legislation, it remains a topical issue and should make for interesting listening. If you need a little kindness in these troubled times, it'll be interesting to tune into Radio 4 at 9pm for the Anatomy of Kindness results. Claudia Hammond and guests announced the results of the biggest ever public science project on kindness, which involved more than 60,000 participants from across the world. It's on Radio 4 on Wednesday at 9pm. Tuesday, March 15th, China's Stolen Treasures on Radio 4 at 11.30am investigates a series of robberies of Chinese antiquities from museums across Europe between 2010 and 2015. Dr Noah Charney wonders whether these were carried out in an attempt to repatriate treasures that were stolen by French and British troops from the Chinese emperor in 1860. A familiar programme goes out in the evening at 8.40pm on Radio 4 when Peter White introduces another edition of In Touch. He presents news and views for those that are blind or partially sighted. 
and many of us will remember the broadcaster Robert Robinson. At 9pm on Radio 4 Extra, Laurie Taylor celebrates his life and work in a tribute to Robert Robinson. Robert was a mainstay of today, between 1971 and 1974, and then stopped the week from 74 to 1992. Wednesday, March 16th, Maureen and Friends, Radio 4, 11.30am. Performances, new performances from Maureen Lippmann, which were recorded in front of a live audience in the BBC Radio Theatre. Great to have that back. The show consists of comic monologues, musings, anecdotes, and begins with a poem reflecting on the past two years. Also on Radio 4, Tea and Telepathy at 4pm, we find Greg James delving into the BBC archive to find early appearances of three actresses nominated for Oscars this year. Judy Dench, Olivia Coleman, and Jessie Buckley. He also recounts a mass experiment in telepathy from 1927 and explores the history of the much-loved Children's Hour. And no apologies for remaining on Radio 4 for one of the best-written and performed comedies for a long time. We mention it every week, Joanna Lumley and Roger Alam as the long-married couple in Conversations from a Long Marriage. Episode 2 this week, Travelling Light by Jan Etherington at 6.30pm on Radio 4. And don't forget, if you are a cricket enthusiast, although that's a little bit different at the moment, you might be reminded that day one of the second test between the West Indies and England is being broadcast on Talk Sport 2 from 1.30pm on Wednesday. And it will continue for the next five days. Assuming England, of course, can last that long. So Talk Sport 2 is the radio station. It is available on digital radio and online. Thursday, March 17th, Desert Island Discs repeated, 11am, Radio 4 Extra, George Clooney from 2003. And if this isn't enough for you, you can always tune in again at 9pm for a repeat of the repeat. George, of course, is a very popular man. The drama event of the week begins at 2.15 on Radio 4 with our friends in the North, episode 1, 1964. Peter Flannery's adaptation of his award-winning 1996 TV drama, which actually starred a very young Daniel Craig, chronicles the lives of four friends from the 1960s to the 1990s. It is set against a background of political, corporate and police corruption and radical changes in society. The series concludes with a new 10th episode written by Adam Usden, which brings the story up to date and asks the question, how much have we really learned as a nation in the past 25 years? And finally, for Thursday, the Classic FM concert at 8pm is introduced by Trevor MacDonald. Sir Trevor leads us through an all-Irish programme for St Patrick's Day. Finally, Friday, March 18th, we begin the final day of our listings for the week with Desert Island Discs. A new one this time on Radio 4 at 9am. The rock star Robert Plant shares his eight favourite recordings. And according to the Radio Times, they're powerful, moving and surprising, like the man himself. Radio 4's last word at four o'clock is worth a listen as Matthew Bannister presents the programme that celebrates the lives of notable people who've died recently. And it's worth staying on the channel for feedback at 4.30 on Radio 4, where listeners' views on BBC radio programmes are introduced by Roger Bolton. And we round off our radio highlights this week with a couple of options for a Friday evening. Radio 3 at 11pm, Late Junction. Jennifer Lucy Allen shines a light on bad behaviour on the folk scene with bawdy blues, feral folk, some naughty ballads and early calypso. Certainly one way to end the week. If that proves far too much, you can always rely on smooth classics on Classic FM at 10pm to end your week 
on a calmer note. That's it for this week's Radio Highlights. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. TNF Soundings. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Here is John's selection of audio-described television programmes for the week commencing Saturday the 12th of March. If you're interested in winter sports, let's start with the key moments from Day 8 of the Winter Paralympics on Channel 4 at 8am. Simply Raymond Blanc is on ITV at 11.40am. Raymond features cheese this week, including his take on baked camembert. Earth's Greatest Spectacles is on BBC Two at 10am, not the glasses. Cameras explore Botswana's Okavango Delta. On BBC One, there's Bargain Hunt at 1.15pm from the National Botanic Gardens of Wales. If you fancy a feature film, there's Pride and Prejudice on BBC Two at 4.45, a period drama based on Jane Austen's novel, starring Keira Knightley as Elizabeth Bennet. Superman and Lois continues at 5.15. Superman pays a visit to Morgan Edge. Casualty is on BBC One at 8.35. Ian risks everything to help a patient in Now I Can Breathe. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the feature film on Channel 4 at 9pm. This is the Radio Times film of the week. This is the story of Sharon Tate and the Manson family, but as told by director Quentin Tarantino. On the Sunday the 13th, and on ITV at 11.55am, the Love Your Garden team are building a garden for twin girls with a rare form of epilepsy. Bargain Hunt is on BBC One at 12.30 and is from Hungerford. The final part of Frozen Planet is on BBC One at 4pm. David Attenborough examines what rising temperatures mean for the polar regions of our planet. Extraordinary Portraits on BBC One at 6.30. Dale Grimshaw, famed for his street murals, is tasked with painting a picture of Patrick, who was photographed carrying an English Defence League member to safety during the 2020 Black Lives Matter demonstration. Remarkable Places to Eat on BBC Two at 8pm. Fred Zelex and Angela Hartnett head to Venice and the island of Burano, where they eat the best risotto Angela has ever tasted. Steps to Freedom, the story of Irish dance, is on BBC Four at 8pm. This documentary explores the Irish dance from its humble roots to the global phenomenon it is today. Peaky Blinders on BBC One at nine, and in part three, Tommy tries to find who has placed a curse on his family. The Ipcrest file is on ITV at nine. Harry sees enough in Berlin to convince Dolby that what happened there was a deliberate ruse. On his way to a nuclear weapons research lab with Jean, there is a stranger on his tail. Sister Boniface Mysteries on the Drama Channel at 5.30pm. In this, the first of a series of ten, the sister investigates the death of a woman at a Wurzel festival. Now onto programmes that are on each day. Caught Red-Handed is on BBC One at 10.45. Bargain Hunt at 12.15 on BBC One. Doctors on BBC One at 1.45, but not on Monday or Friday. This is repeated at 7pm each day on BBC Two. Shakespeare and Hathaway at 2.15 on BBC One but not on Mondays and on Friday it's on at 1.45pm. Escape to the Country on BBC One at 3. 
The Heights on BBC Two at 3pm. In this, the repeat of Series 1, Mark deserts his children and Anna and Ryan each try to win over Watto. The Repair Shops on BBC One at 3.45. Heartbeat is on ITV3 at 6. There's two episodes every night at this time. Law and Order UK is on ITV3 at 9. And all of the soaps are in their usual places in the schedule and are audio described. Now the programme is on Monday the 14th of March. Tom Daly's Hell of a Homecoming. Tom Daly's Hell of a Homecoming on BBC One at 9pm. Tom takes on an epic Red Nose Day endurance challenge as he rows, cycles, swims and completes an ultra-marathon on his way from his home in Plymouth to the Olympic Park in London. Nigella's Cook, Eat, Repeat on BBC Two at 7.30pm. Nigella creates an elegant caramel custard. The Real Peaky Blinders is on BBC Two at 9 and is repeated at 10 past 11 on Friday, also on BBC Two. The history of the gang phenomenon in Birmingham continues with a profile of petty thief Billy Kimber. Holding on ITV at 9, a dark comic crime drama adapted from Graham Norton's novel. When human remains are found in a tiny Irish village, Sergeant PJ Collins finally has a genuine case to investigate. The Great Cookbook Challenge with Jamie Oliver at 8pm on Channel 4 the three finalists must design a front cover for their potential book and prepare a feast of six dishes which represent the ambition and scope of their recipes. Jeremy Kyle's show, Death on Daytime, on Channel 4 at 9, the concluding part of the documentary that explores the cancellation of the Jeremy Kyle show. This is repeated on 4-7 on Wednesday at 12.25am. Now, Tuesday the 15th of March... Nigella's Cook, Eat, Repeat on BBC Two at 7.30pm. In this, the last of the series, Nigella creates a crab mac and cheese, mine or mine chocolate cookies, and a one-pot dish of chicken orzo. Diel and Pasco are on the Drama Channel at 8pm. This is going to hurt on BBC One at 9pm. In part six, Adam does a shift at a private hospital. The Killing of PC Harper at 9pm on ITV. In August 2019, Police Constable Andrew Harper was killed after responding to a report of a burglary and subsequently being dragged along behind a car. Sir Trevor MacDonald re-examines the case and the campaign by his widow, Lizzie, to change the law. The Witchfinder on BBC Two at 10. Bannister must travel to Chelmsford to put on a show trial for the Witchfinder General. Guy's Road to Chernobyl on Moor 4 at 10. Guy Martin explores the site of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in Ukraine. Now Wednesday the 16th. Rick Stein's Cornwall at 7.30 on BBC Two. Rick explores the wild landscape of Land's End and then travels inland to pick apples for a dish to emulate his mother's apple charlotte pudding. Your Body Uncovered with Kate Garraway on BBC Two at 8. Singer Judith has been delaying surgery on a thyroid nodule and Melina learns about gallstones. Kirsty and Phil love it or list it on Channel 4 at 8pm. The duo are in Dorset meeting Sue and Roy. Sue wants to downsize having waited 35 years for husband and builder Roy to complete their home renovation. Interior Design Masters on BBC One at 9. 
Alan Carr presents from Wooten House in Surrey as nine interior designers each revive one of the hotel's dated bedrooms. Kate and Koji on ITV at 9pm. This is series two of this sitcom starring Brenda Blethyn as cafe owner Kate. Tonight Kate is in line for a star prize. Breaking Dad at 9.30 on ITV. Bradley and Barney Walsh embark on a new set of adventures along Italy's Amalfi Coast. Michael Mosley, Who Made Britain Fat? On Channel 4 at 9. Michael turns his attention on the nation's streets as he explores the rise in obesity and puts forward a plan to tackle the crisis before it overwhelms the NHS. Princess Margaret, The Royal Rebel. On BBC 4 at 9. This documentary about the Queen's younger sister shows how her turbulent life reflected the social and sexual revolution of the second half of the 20th century. Thursday the 17th, Rick Stein's Cornwall at 7.30 on BBC Two. Rick meets a family who makes some of the best Gouda cheese in Britain. Dragon's Den on BBC One at 8. A digital wardrobe, sustainable coffee from Honduras, acrylic walking sticks, pitched by a former circus performer, and a scented sanitizer, all bid for investment in the den tonight. Perfect House, Perfect Location on Channel 4 at 8pm. In the first part of this new series, Steve Jones shows the families a range of properties without saying where they are. When the locations are revealed, will the prospective buyers be tempted to make an offer? Michael Wood's Story of England on BBC 4 at 8. Michael looks at how the village of Kibworth coped with the Great Famine and the Black Death. Joanna Lumley's Great Cities of the World on ITV at 9. Joanna explores the idiosyncratic side of three European cities starting in Paris with the fire-ravaged Notre Dame Cathedral and her final stop being the Moulin Rouge. Extraordinary Escapes with Sandy Togswick on Channel 4 at 9. Sandy and her guest Sarah Pascoe visit Scotland's east coast. Shakespeare in Love at 9 on BBC 4. In this feature film, which stars Gwyneth Paltrow, Will Shakespeare's career is in crisis. He's running out of money and has writer's block. But when he meets the beautiful Viola, his life and English literature are destined to change forever. And finally, it's Friday the 18th of March. As today is Red Nose Day, BBC One is taken over by Comet Relief from 7pm until 11.30, with a gap for the 10 o'clock news. But as this is live, it doesn't have any audio description. Earth's Great Rivers on BBC Two at nine follows the route of the Zambezi as it flows across Africa. Plunging over cliffs, it forms part of one of the largest waterfalls on the planet. Grantchester on ITV at nine. Lester Carmichael is found dead with an unusual neck wound. Geordie and Will investigate his private life and find this is somewhat grubbier than the spotless image he projected in life. Is his murder connected with his misdemeanours or by his wife's desire to protect his company's brand? Grayson's Art Club on Channel 4 at 8. Grayson Perry and his wife Philippa return to urge viewers to create artworks of their own. Father Brown on Drama at 8. In the Labyrinth of the Minotaur, the priest is asked to look after Lady Felicia's niece. Sister Boniface Mysteries, also on Drama, but at 9. In this second episode, Lights, Camera, Murder, a TV crew used St Vincent's Convent as a location for a thriller. I hope you find something of interest in my selection this week. TNF Soundings. 